0: It kind of brings back uh, memories of when I was a student. When I was a single student, the uh, men and the women were always on opposite sides of the uh, tabernacle. Actually, this building didn't exist, but the uh, old chapel up in Spencer Hall, uh, there was women on one side and men on the other side. Uh, and you didn't cross over the line. And after I came back as a married student, you know, I thought that I would be able to sit in the back like with my wife. Uh, but no, even as a married student, you had to be on one side or the other. So uh, I shared with my freshman uh, this morning that uh, this is, I think, about the 10th mes- message that I've given on lordship uh, at the beginning of a Foundations weekend, and it seems to me that every message that I've shared has had some real intensity associated with it, and a, a heavy message, you know, dealing with this Lordship. And so, when I was reflecting on what I wanted to share this year, uh, and I started thinking about it, and uh, you know, probably uh, you know a couple months ago. Uh, I said, you know, I, Lord, I just would like to do something that's gonna, maybe a little more fluffy, uh, maybe you can help me to be really funny, and I, let me talk about lordship, but uh, you know, at the end, I don't want everybody to feel real good about themselves, and I actually prepared a message like that, and I swear the older that I get, the more that I hear the the voice of God in my head, almost like an audible voice, and I, I had it prepared, and I looked at it, and I almost saw like I could hear the Lord saying, "You don't really think I'm going to let you give that to you?" And so uh, anyway, I had to scrap it, so we're back to heavy and not fluffy. Uh, I'm sorry about that. One thing that is different, though, the upperclassmen would uh, uh, be the only ones that would uh, know this. Uh, what's different about this message tonight? Yeah, Zach, you, should, you should, should be in the front row just like you are. Uh, I always hand out an outline with fill in the blanks. Tonight we just have a little uh, prayer that I'm going to lead you in uh, down the road. Uh, but I uh, did overheads uh, tonight, and who, who's, actually, I, am I trusting my, uh, who is that, is that Mariah? All right, so my life is in your hands. You, you love me, girl, right? Okay, I know you're not going to hurt me. So, all right. Uh, I was always, always have been hesitant about the overheads if I didn't have the remote, you know, in my hand. So uh, I'm surrendering control tonight. Well, the title of this message is "Repairing Broken Lordship." Uh, I was married to the most Incredible woman for three months short of fifty years. Uh, she really could do almost anything. Uh, she really created a beautiful home. Uh, her, her home mindset was that uh, to create a home, uh, you had to be artistic, and so there was uh, just it was just a beautiful, comfortable place to be. There was this one problem. Living plants came to our house to die. Uh, She wanted plants. She tried so hard. She read books about them. She watered them. She fed them. Uh, She even talked to them. You know, I, I came in one afternoon. She didn't know I was coming in then, and I, I actually heard her singing, you know, to one of the plants. You know, in my, just kind of like a makeup song. You know, I, I, I love you, and I really want you to thrive in my home. But no matter what she did, within a month, the plant had gone to heaven. Uh, one of her uh, her friends uh made her a special project. You know, this woman had a real green thumb and grew things outside and inside. And she said, uh, I remember the day that uh, she brought this plant to Connie and she said, uh, you know, you cannot kill this plant. You know, this, this, this is such a low-maintenance plant. There's no way in the world you can kill this plant. And uh, three weeks later, it was in plant heaven. So, anyway, that was my wife's experience with plants, but God uh, had a different perspective on plants. He actually was convinced that he could grow them. And and in Isaiah chapter 5, we had the beginning of what uh, is a song that Isaiah sings. And uh, God was concerned or convinced that not only could uh, could he grow a plant, but he actually could grow a major vineyard. And so Isaiah says, I will sing to the Lord for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower. He carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? And, of course, this becomes a picture not only of the people of God, but we can even apply it personally tonight. We're uh, a part of the vineyard, as it were. Uh, and God spared nothing when he planted this vineyard. He didn't compromise on the quality of the seed. You know, that was his word. You can't get a, a higher, loftier seed than that to plant. Uh, he built a watchtower. He said, I'm going to guard it. I'm going to make sure that uh, animals don't come in to devour the plant, to devour the fruit. I'm going to watch over this. And, and so I, I plowed it, I planted it, I watched over it. I'm expecting to have a harvest of sweet grapes, uh, but uh, the grapes were bitter. Uh, what went wrong? This whole area of fruitfulness. Uh, first thing I want to note is that uh, this is actually a love song. Isaiah uh, says, "I am singing for the one I love." And I thought about uh, that, and I thought really in the, the area of love songs, you basically have two kinds, you know, of love songs. Uh, you have the uh, the love song that. Uh, uh, it's just full of joy and excitement. Uh, actually uh this song I quoted in both of the weddings that I did uh, this summer for uh Lee and Connor back there. No. they're, not, they're, not, oh, they're over there. Oh, they're over there, yeah, Lee and Connor and Michael and Shania. Of course you guys are staying at the marriage altar so you don't remember anything I said, but I actually did uh, actually did quote uh this song. Uh, Every mountain I have climbed, every raging river crossed. You are the treasure I long to find. Without your love, I was lost. And then the phrase that I used to quote to Connie often, let the world stop turning. Let the sun stop burning. Let them tell me love's not worth going through. If it all falls apart, I will know deep in my heart That the only dream that mattered had come true. That in this life, I was loved by you. I used to like to quote that song to her. Well, that's one kind of love song. Pretty up, pretty happy. This is another love song, also from my generation. When she left, she took my soul, because she's that kind And the wound grows deeper with the passing time. They say I'll soon forget her, out of sight and out of mind. Like an empty, silent bell, I'm a hollow, empty shell without a mind. This guy's not happy. People say I'm better off without her. It ain't true, I just can't live without her. And if she came back tomorrow, I'd take her back today because my world keeps growing smaller every second minute hour she's away. Well, that's the two kind of love songs. And actually, the, uh, the kind of love song that Isaiah sings in Isaiah chapter 5 uh, is a song of this second type. He is expressing the broken heart of God. In Psalm one, we're promised that the righteous are going to produce fruit. Jesus uh, says in John uh, fifteen that uh, uh, fruitfulness brings great glory to my Father. He wants us to produce much fruit, even to have a fruit that remains. In uh, Matthew seven, he you know, says, "You know, you, you know the false prophets, you know by the fruit of their life." And he begins to deal with these areas of broken lordship. Because God is basically saying, you know what? The vineyard did not produce what it was supposed to produce. And God is essentially saying, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't the fault of the seed. It wasn't the fault of the preparation. It wasn't the fault that I, I wasn't in a watchtower watching over my vineyard. Yeah, the fault was on the other side. The way that people responded to me. And so this chapter, and this is where it kind of gets heavy, uh, is full of what these uh, uh, are called the woes of Isaiah chapter 5. You know, woe, the, uh, uh, the, the word is oy in uh, Hebrew. Uh, actually, the roots of the uh, Yiddish phrase, oy vey. You know, woe, alas you know a lack dismay pain sorrow and i think that uh as we look at it i have chosen uh the uh, new living translation to read from because instead of oh, it kind of describes the uh, aspect of the uh uh the effect you know that it has on the people of god and on our lives And it says, instead of woe, what sorrow exists. And so in this chapter, we see some different areas of broken lordship. And the first broken area is the area of narcissism. What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land. I started to go down this road of narcissism when I was listening to a podcast. that's uh, actually about eight parts done by Christianity Today. And it was called The Rise and Fall of the Mars Hill Church Movement. Uh, under Mark Driscoll, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill And in one of the interviews, uh, there was a person that was uh, quoting this book. I usually don't hold up a book, you know, in a sermon, but uh, it's entitled, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse by Chuck DeGroat, actually a pastor and licensed therapist. Uh, It's a powerful book, and I know that you don't have time to read anything other than what you're supposed to read for your classes. I got it. Uh, But over Christmas, you know, you need to grab that book and read it. It's very, very powerful. And I know that you're not in a place where you're buying up land so that you're forcing people to evict. uh, But the whole concept of living by yourself in the land Uh, Narcissism uh, is an excessive interest in oneself. It involves a sense of entitlement, uh, the desire to control. Uh, I look at the uh, temptation that came to Jesus in the wilderness. The temptation was to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful. It was a toxic cocktail that the enemy was trying to sell him. And he, he, he turned it down at every level. But as I read that book, I realized uh, how many leaders, you know, I have known uh, that have fit that category. Now, he, he recognizes that there's an actually a, 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 a mental condition called uh, NPD, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, and that's not really what I'm talking about tonight. He, he doesn't talk about it in the book. Uh, but i'm talking about the you know this desire to be in control the sense of entitlement the sense that it's all about me and the essence of lordship is that it's all about him john captures this in the words of john the baptist in the gospel of john chapter 3 you remember the story that uh the disciples, uh, you know, come to uh, to him, and uh, the uh, disciples of you know John are coming to him, and they're saying, "You yeah, know, Jesus is having more influence than you had." And they were uh, they were trying to be loyal to the one that had been their rabbi and their teacher. Uh, and then John makes this statement that we all quote, and uh, it just seems like such an obvious statement. I am filled with joy at his success, John the Baptist says. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven, and he is greater than anyone else. He must increase. I must decrease. But I thought even though John made that statement, narcissism began to creep into his thinking a little bit when he's in prison. He's been faithful. He's followed the Lord. Yeah, he, he followed the, uh, uh, the, the call that God put on his life to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. And now he's in, in prison and it occurred to me that when narcissism begins to creep in and,
1: and I have to say that
0: I looked at that book and not only did it make me think of some leaders that I've related to in the past, but I had to be honest and say, you know, it's confronting me with some things in my life. I've got some narcissistic things in me where I want to be in control, uh, where I don't want to embrace his lordship. And so in John chapter 11, or I'm sorry, Matthew uh, chapter 11, uh, we see the uh, narcissism being the workout in John a little bit because when it starts to come into our life, there's two things that always happen. The first is that we begin to question his lordship. And so he sends his disciples. He's in prison, he's not free, he can't come himself. But he sends his disciples and he says, you know, uh, I, when, when I heard about the things you were doing, I've got to ask the question, are you the one that is coming or should we be looking for another one? Now, I can picture the, a number of people asking that question, but John the Baptist asking that question this is the guy that leaped inside his mother's womb uh, as a baby when, when the, the Mary came into the room. And uh, suddenly John recognizes that Jesus is in her womb. And you know, he leaps inside as soon as he hears her voice. You know, he knew in the womb that this was the Lamb of God. Why he points to him as soon as he sees him. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knew. You know, that Jesus was the one who was coming. And the second thing that gets uh, tied into the narcissism is that we begin to question his plan for our life. Because I don't know if you've ever saw it, but it says that he questioned Jesus after he saw the things that he was doing. After he saw that Jesus was healing lepers, raising people from the dead, healing blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, when he hears that Jesus is doing that stuff, he says, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? Now, how many people do you, uh, do you know that, that are, are looking at the Lord and saying, you know what, if, if one more blind person gets healed, I'm walking away from God. Yeah, if, if, if one more deaf person gets to hear, yeah, forget it. Yeah, how can I serve a God like that? You know, how can I serve a God that uh, uh, you know heals uh, heals the leper? One more leper gets healed, I'm out of here. It's kind of strange. When he heard what the Lord was doing, he makes the question, and of course, it's very, very personally applied at this point, because John is saying, if you are able to heal the leper if you're able to touch the blind eye, if you're able to unstop the deaf ear, if you're even able to bring someone back from the grave, then how come you can't use your lordship and your power to deliver me from this prison where it seems like I'm going to die and get beheaded? Why isn't your power demonstrated and your lordship demonstrated in my life in the way it seems to be demonstrated out there. And Jesus, after praising him and lifting him up very high an affirmations, says, blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Narcissism says, I want to be the center, and not only do I want to be the center, God better come through the way that I think he should come through. But sometimes it means dying in a prison. Sometimes it means being beheaded by an ungodly ruler. uh, And still, his lordship is in place. Narcissism calls us to make a substitute, where I substitute myself as lord. The second area of woe is what I would call an excessive liberty with alcohol. What sorrow for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol and spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. I left off the last part of the verse that says, but they never think about the Lord or notice what he is doing. I think in the 21st century, uh, the issue here over alcohol and uh, you, you who have are upperclassmen have sat under an extended teaching and I gave in foundations on this. Uh, and uh, I'm not trying to make a case tonight, you know, for teetotaling. You know, the guideline guide uh, while you're a student here at DLM. Uh you know, that's understood. But I have to confess that it's been disturbing to me uh, and I see it very, very clearly on Facebook. I've got over three thousand and some friends on Facebook continuing to grow all the time. And so I see a lot of posts by former students. And what I seem to, to be seeing is is uh, you know, not someone who is uh, uh, trying to uh, project uh, well it, it, it's okay to have a glass you know, of wine with the meal. Uh, What I've seen on many Facebook posts has almost been a a, a glorying in the liberty that's there, a flaunting of the liberty. Uh, I I actually uh, had a student, uh, a former student, say to me uh, not too long ago, uh, that was one of the things that uh, I, I was most happy about after I left Elam. Because now I didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, skip a beer with my meal or a glass of wine with my meal. And I'm thinking, has, has it become that important? And if it's become that important, you know, why flaunt the liberty? Paul says it very clearly. I, uh, I have, uh, uh, you know, liberty to, uh, to, to do and to move, uh, but I will not be mastered by anything. All things aren't expedient. You know, not everything edifies. He he makes the statement that uh, in connection with the meat sacrifice to idols, uh, if if it's going to cause another brother to stumble, I'll never have another piece of meat in my life if that's going to be the case. Uh, As opposed uh, to people who want to see pushing their liberty, I can go as far as to say I would know no way whatever ever uh, mention the church. But I would say this. Uh, if I mentioned the church, you all would know what church I'm talking about. And I had several of people that were involved in leadership at that church. I talked about how at the leadership meeting, one night they were uh, meeting on a weekend, and the different leaders were assigned different things to bring to the, uh, you know, to the meeting. You know, one person was supposed to bring a bottle of gin. Another person was supposed to bring a bottle of whiskey. Another person was bringing wine. I'm thinking, uh, uh, is that the liberty that Paul's talking about? Uh, is, is that what we want to be flaunting in the face of people? And I look at this, and I think as I look at this phrase, but they never think about the Lord or notice what he is doing. The price tag, if you move in excessive liberty with alcohol, is that you lose interest in relationship with Jesus and his plan and his purpose in the earth. The second broken area is I substitute liberty For lordship. It's no accident that the third broken area is in the area of addictions. What sorrow for those who drag their sins behind them with ropes made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. And then the next verse says, they even mock God and say, hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel carry out His plan, for we want to know what it is. Addiction, of course, is continued compulsive behavior in spite of harmful consequences that brings long-lasting change to your life and even to your brain. And as we look at this, uh, the weight of addiction is described here. Uh, and we're not uh, only talking about alcohol and drugs here, although interestingly enough, I've heard uh, some Christians that, you know, have been open enough and honest with me uh, to say that they can't wait until marijuana is made legal. Because when that's legal, you know, that'll be something they can buy you know, like you would buy uh, alcohol at the liquor store. Uh, Somehow liberty has gotten out of whack. Well, now we're talking about addictions and the weight of addiction. Uh, We're talking about substance. We're talking about pornography. We're talking about video games. We're talking about recreational idolatry. We're talking about food. We're talking about all kinds of things that can begin to compromise the lordship of Jesus in my life. Where something else now is really calling the shots. Something else is really controlling my life and steering me in a certain direction. The whole issue of pornography for some people. And uh, I I don't want to again, you know, be discouraging for people who are trying to fight it and, you know, fight the battle and and make progress. Uh, But one thing I know is that God wants to bring a victory into people's lives that is lasting. Somehow, if uh, you say, well, you know what, I used to look at it three or four times a day or constantly all day long. Now it's only three or four times a week. Uh, somehow, that's not breaking the addictive cycle. Uh, when I sat in recovery, recovering from my own alcoholism, you know, we called the somebody who went for long periods without a drink and then went on a binge. We called them dry drunks. You haven't really dealt with the issue that's broken the addiction in your life, and that's some of what God wants to do this weekend. It's going to start tonight with a declaration of His Lordship. It'll continue tomorrow with uh, Brother Brother A's, uh, Doctor A's message. Uh, But I believe that God does want to set some people free this weekend. Uh, It is a process, uh, but uh, the initial break can take place in a weekend like this. But notice the weight of it. You drag your sins behind you with ropes made of lies, and the lie is the fact that I've substituted something, and I I really expect this substitute now to provide what I need. One of the cliches that they teach you in recovery, if what you need is not what you want, then what you get will never be enough, Uh, and that's what this passage is describing. But then notice the ultimate outcome of it. Uh, a mocking of God. Hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Sometimes a person caught in an addiction gets to the place where they don't even feel that God is able to set them free. Yeah, show me what you can do. You know, I've, I've prayed and nothing has happened. Uh, well, tonight, you know, I want to declare His Lord in, way, in such a way where I believe we're going to open the door for wonderful things to happen in addictions we substitute porn video games substance whatever it is you know for his lordship the next broken area number 4 is moral confusion What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. I'm not sure that uh, there's ever been a moment in history. I know that there's been times in the past that have been as wicked as ours. But it just seems that the moral confusion that exists today Where you're you're calling, uh, you know, that which is clearly dark. You're saying, wow, that's like the sunshine. You know, and you're looking at the uh, sunshine, you know, and you're saying, you know, that's pitch black. The confusion, you know, all all I can think of is the the distorted thinking. I thought of a little silly story tonight. I don't know what made it pop into my head, but uh, uh, it, it kind of describes the ridiculousness of uh, you know what is being talked about here, and the tragedy of it as well. And you know, so, the scientists that wanted to, to study the jumping ability of frogs. And so he says to the frog, uh, "Frog, jump!" And the frog jumped uh, ten feet. And so he went to his his little uh, journal and he wrote, "When uh, a healthy frog is asked to jump, uh, it's able to jump ten feet." And then he took a a scalpel, and he surgically removed one of the frog's legs. And then he said to the frog, you know, frog, jump. And the frog only jumped five feet. And so he went to his notebook, and he said, you know, when one leg is amputated, the frog's jumping ability is cut in half. And then he took the scalpel, and he amputated the other leg. And he says, frog, jump. And the frog doesn't move. And he says, frog, jump. And the frog doesn't move. And he went to his journal and he said, when both legs are amputated, the frog goes deaf. Well, you know, you look at that and you say, well, how silly can you be? But uh, that's that's really the description where we're at today in the area of morals. We talked about in foundations this term post-truth. The Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as 2016's International Word of the Year. And let me give you the definition that the Oxford Dictionary gives to this term, post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than Peel's than appeals to emotion and personal opinion. That's what you feel is right, and what your opinion is right is what you're going to determine is right. Of course, the problem is, you're looking at light, and you're calling it dark, and you're looking at dark, and you're calling it light, and you're tasting the bitter, which is you know, just uh, absolutely bitter and poisonous. And you say, wow, this is the sweetest thing that I've ever tasted. That's the moral confusion that exists. And so the fourth area of broken lordship substitutes personal opinion for lordship. Broken area number five is the area of pride. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. When broken when Lordship is broken in our lives, we become more clever than God. Proverbs is so clear when it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will lead you in a straight path. But it starts with that trust, and it starts with not leaning my own understanding. Pride makes you more clever than God in your own opinion. I wish my wife was here, I mean, for more reasons than this reason. Because uh, if she was sitting over there, I could bring her right up now and hand her the microphone. Because I sure would like her to give this testimony. It was so powerful for her and for us. But it goes back to uh, when we were single students here in a weekend like this. and Baby, I'm going to do the best to uh, give your testimony in the way that you'd give it if you were here. And there was an altar call at the end, and for some reason I didn't go forward for the altar call, but but my wife did. Now, one thing you have to understand uh, about my wife was she did not cry easily. She's kind of like, a, like an Ashley Mellinger. You know, you just, uh, she doesn't cry easily. A little private joke. And so anyway, uh, she's at the altar, and she's bawling her eyes out. Now, you know, narcissism coming out in me, you know, instead of me thinking, oh, wow, God's really moving with her. God's really touching her. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, she's crying because God's telling her she's got to break up with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to lose this girl that is the, the the girl that I adore, that I that I want to marry. You know, she, she's up there and God is dealing with her to ditch me. You know, which probably isn't a bad idea, but that's not what I want. You know. And so uh, afterwards, you know, I can't wait to get to the snack bar. To find out what my doom is going to be, and so I sat down with her. I said, "Wow, you were really a—you uh, were really deeply touched at the, at the altar, weren't you?" And she said, uh, "She said God was really working in my heart. I saw something about myself." And I said, uh, "You're going to break up with me, aren't you?" She said, "What are you talking about?" And I, I said, "Well, I that's, that's what it had to be." She said, oh, "You got to get over yourself." No, <laughs> she said, no, you're, you're, "You're stuck with me for life." But uh, she said, "What God dealt with me about." And you've heard some of my testimony how God put us together, and I came out of this raw secular background with the uh, the scum of the world dripping off me, and she came to school. Having uh, loved the Lord since she was four years old, with the uh, dew of the garden of Eden, Eden dripping off her, and so there we are together. And so she hadn't done; she had a marvelous testimony. She hadn't gone down uh, certain paths that some of us had gone down, and uh, God had really kept her, and it was it was it was beautiful. And certainly, I rejoiced in it. But she said, "Honey, what I saw tonight." 'Cause it was uh, the passage that the person was talking about was from Luke eighteen and the publican uh is uh there with the uh uh tax collector and the publican is kinda of hanging back and the tax collector is a, the, the the publican the tax collector says, you know, Uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the the publican is at the altar and the tax collector's back, you know, kind of beating his chest and the Pharisee looks around and says, I thank God that I'm not a sinner like everyone else, especially that person over there. And she said, the Lord just showed me that what kept me from going down certain pathways when I was in high school was pride. It was like I was. That, that, I, I'm too good for that. Yeah, I'm not going to lower myself to what that person has lowered themselves to. I looked at uh, I looked at certain people and I said, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go down that path because you know uh, I, I'm better than that. And she said, I realized realized it was pride in my life. And then she uh, took out a book by C.S. Lewis. And she gave me this quote from Mere Christianity that says, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing, patronizing, spoiling sport, backbiting, the pleasures of power and of hatred, For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Let me say that phrase again. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But then, of course, C.S. Lewis adds, in classic C.S. Lewis style, but of course, it's better to be neither. And she said, I saw myself in that Pharisee, and that's what I was repenting of. Pride means that we substitute our own wisdom for his lordship. We become pleasure, uh, uh, clever in our own eyes. The last broken area is what I would call social favoritism. It's kind of put in terms of uh, legal judges, what sorrow there are... For those who are heroes drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they call it and then you're saying, Hey, Klein, we quit bulletin us about the alcohol. Don't take it up with me, take it up with Isaiah. You know, he's the one that brought it back twice. Uh, but they take bribes to let the wicked go free and they punish the innocent. Now we're not in a position where we do that. We're not sitting on some kind of court. Uh, But uh, I saw this in in the terms of uh, what I would call social favoritism. I thought of the book of James where it says if uh, somebody comes in and they got on uh, a certain kind of outfit that doesn't demonstrate the the highest style, they're basically poor people. And you tell them to sit in the back and somebody comes in with the you know, all the new fashionable clothes, and you say, hey, sit in the front. James says this, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Love your neighbor as yourself, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. I think what's really being described here is I come to the place where I'm willing to sell out because I just want to hang out with the people in my own tribe. I want to hang out with the people that think like me, that dress like me, that uh, have the, having the same perspective on the scripture as I do. And I just would really encourage you, of course, now, you know, here we are, uh, you know, stuck with our own tribe in some ways again because of COVID, but hopefully that will lift out for five days. And uh, I would really encourage you, as this semester progresses, if you find yourself sitting at the same table at lunch every day, and and, and never reaching out, never expanding. I've I've sat up there in the uh, the lunch room, uh, uh you know many times so far this semester, having lunch with people, and uh, I just I, I happen to look over and I see our uh, uh, our friends from Hella Mission. and they're just sitting there at the table with their children. Uh, I don't see any students coming to hang out with them. And I'm saying, you know, are, are we so into our own tribe? Are we so into our our, our own clique? We can't sit with someone from another nation. We can't sit with someone that speaks a different language, trying to draw from uh, you know what the, what they have to give us. Uh, I really would encourage you to stretch out beyond yourself, because I think the reason that alcohol is linked with this kind of concept is that uh, in alcohol you close your eyes. To what really needs to be challenged and developed. Social favoritism means I substitute my own tribe for lordship. Well, I can't conclude the message without looking at uh, something that's very, very positive, and that spills over in the chapter six, the classic passage where King Uzziah dies. And Isaiah sees the Lord, high and lofty, sitting on a lofty throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. What a sight that must have been. I can remember the beautiful train that was on my wife's wedding dress. God has a train that fills the whole temple. And not only is he sitting in a place of lordship when Uzziah dies, and you got to recognize that uh, Uzziah had led the nation for over 50 years. He wasn't the best king. He was kind of probably somewhere in between. He wasn't an Ahab, and he wasn't a David. But he was better than a lot of kings. And now you know, he's not in a place to rule anymore. And, and, and people are thinking... Uh, you know, what's going to happen to us? It kind of makes me reflect back on some of the, you know, There's uh, in the last 50-plus years, we've had 11 presidents. And I've watched a number of elections, you know, certainly the, the most recent one. But, you know, going back, uh, you know, further, and some of the ones before you were born. And a certain candidate has won, and, and, and Christians go into a Depression it's it's like the end of the world. It's like there's there's no hope for our country. There's no hope for the world now. You know, the uh, the person that I wanted to see elected didn't get elected. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You know, isn't there a Lord seated on a throne, you know, above any kingly power that exists in this earth? Uh are are we, are we in his hands? Or are we in the hands of uh You know, our government and the powers that be, I want to trust the one who is high and lifted up. And not only do I see his lordship, but I see his holiness. It always moves me that the seraphim are saying, Holy, holy, holy. When something is repeated three times, it's important. You don't see any place in the scripture where it says God is love, love, love. You don't see any place in the scripture where it says he's justice, justice, justice. He's kind, kind, kind. Patient, patient, patient. When you're talking about his holiness, it has to be repeated three times. By creatures, it seems, that were created for no other reason than to surround his throne, making that proclamation 24-7 for all eternity. Holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah sees that, he changes the woe. All the woes in chapter 5 have been on certain areas of broken lordship. But now, when he sees himself in light of God's holiness, he doesn't say, Woe to this area. He says, woe is me. He, he the most Probably one of the most righteous men who lived on the earth at that time. Says, woe is me. I am doomed. I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people of filthy lips. I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. I've seen the Lord. And I've seen him in his holiness. And all I can say is that I'm undone. I'm unravelled. I'm coming apart at the seams. Woe is me. But God never wants to leave us there. And picture that seraphim going to the, uh, 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 the 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 altar and taking a burning coal and and actually putting it on the lips of the prophet, searing his lips. Probably in the thing he was seeing, he probably would have screamed in pain. And so we are not only recognizing we are broken people in desperate need, but we need to surrender to his holy cleansing. That's what Isaiah does. And the result of that now is that we can respond to his call. Whom shall I send, God says. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. When we have really surrendered to his lordship, we not only experience a cleansing in the broken areas, uh, we not only experience a purification in the broken areas, we are able to experience his call in a new way, recognizing that God is going to thrust you out in the days ahead to be his representative and his ambassador in this earth, and to change, you know, not only this country, but the nations of the world. That's where God wants to take us. I conclude tonight with a, and what I'd like to like to do is uh, call us just to a, a personal place of response. You know, make an altar where you're at, uh, come make an altar somewhere. I don't, I don't care where it is. But I'd like to give you a few minutes to respond, and then if you trust me, I'd like to actually lead you uh, in this Lordship prayer that I wrote. It's pretty much the same one that I did last year. I did a few changes on it, and we can pray this prayer together and then move towards uh, some expression of uh, love and adoration to him and worship at the end. But I want to leave you with a couple of those slides. Go to that slide where Mark chapter 11. And this is my final challenge to you in this area of lordship. The next morning as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Now you remember this story, Jesus comes, he's wanting some figs. The story gets a little bit more confusing because one of the Gospels says it wasn't the time for figs. But Jesus looks at this tree, and here's the Lord of love. You say, well, you the know, Lord of love never moved in any woes. Well, you've never read Matthew 23. He pronounces woe after woe after woe on the self-righteous Pharisees. But now he looks at this fig tree, and the Lord of love and blessing curses it so that it dies. Now, I believe that uh, he was the prophet of all prophets. And to me, it's not that complex I think that he looked at that tree. I think that he recognized, number one, that tree had not produced fruit in the past, and it wasn't going to produce fruit in the future. And if it's not going to produce fruit, it should be thrown into the fire. That's even John 15. And so he curses the tree, and it withers. I kind of struggled with that at one time, just picturing the Lord doing that, this is a little bit different than the Lord that I had pictured. But I want to leave you with this that became for me a number of years ago, a very personal prayer. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to pray it, but I'm challenging you to pray it. And if we can go to the last slide. My Lordship prayer, and this is something that I prayed in the late, in the late 1980s, I had no idea how God was going to answer that prayer. I must confess, if I would have had an idea, I might have pulled back on it. But I read that passage, and I just felt led to pray this way. Lord, would you curse anything in my life that you cannot anoint to produce fruit For your glory and honor in my life. I knew there was stuff in my life that He could not anoint. It was never gonna produce any fruit. And I just felt inspired to pray that prayer. And God answered that prayer. And God brought a pruning into my life, He brought a purging into my life. He really answered that prayer. And as you go to your personal altar tonight, I'd like to consider you, or to challenge you, would you consider being courageous enough to ask the Lord to do that in your life? To curse anything in your life that's going to keep you from being the fruitful vineyard that the Lord of love wants to produce in you that he may touch this hurting world. If we could have somebody come to one of the keyboards, just give us a uh, little background and invite you just to make an altar where you're at, sitting, standing, kneeling, laying down, I don't care. Lord Jesus, you helped me discharge what you put on my heart. I know some of these things were not easy to hear. And I know that it's not that kind of message that gives us warm fuzzies now that I'm done. Lord, my desire tonight is once again even in my own heart. When I prepare a message like this, Lord, it's like looking in the mirror. I'm confronted with areas of my own pride. You certainly confronted me with areas of my own narcissism. But Lord, tonight... I want to make an altar once again and say, will you come, Lord? And will you take charge? I pray again, and because I've walked in it now for so many years, I can pray it without any sense of reservation. Lord Jesus, would you curse anything in my life that you cannot anoint to produce fruit for your glory and honor. I'm at the end of my life, Lord. My dear friends here are at the beginning of theirs. But I want to be fruitful in my old age. And I want them to produce much fruit for their lives and ministry. I want them to produce and lay down their life in such a way submitted to your Lordship that so there will even be a fruit that remains that people will one day stand at their funeral and be moved because of how Each one of these people ahead of me touched their lives and other hurting people. We surrender now to your Lordship at this altar. expressing your hearts personally to him. I wonder if you'd be willing to take this Lordship prayer in your hands now that was passed out. And we could pray this together. I think of Matthew 18, that what we release on earth is released in heaven. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. And somehow in this prayer, I I see a a sense of releasing and binding that will uh, put a seal on this personal altar that we built tonight. So let's just say it together Lord Jesus, your word tells me that clearly. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Tonight I declare and I affirm your lordship in my life and on your campus. With your grace helping me, I give you permission to come and take charge of every detail in my life. I confess that you can do a better job running my life than I could ever do. In the seasons of my life where I have taken control and tampered with my destiny, I ask your forgiveness for my pride and independence. I declare in faith tonight that apart from you, I can do nothing. Please take control of my present and future as I submit my hopes, my dreams, My relationships, my work, and my ministry to your kingship. I personally apply the Lord's Prayer to my life tonight. My Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. At the spiritual altar tonight... I cry out with my whole heart, don't ever let me go my own way. I bind my will to this earthly altar and ask that you will bind it at this moment in heaven. I give you my heart again as I surrender everything to your loving Lordship. We confess that we belong to you, Lord. Be Lord on this campus. Be Lord in our lives individually. Be Lord when we meet in the classroom. Be Lord when we meet in the chapel to worship you. Be Lord when we listen to the speakers in our chapel. Be Lord in the dorms, as we fellowship with one another. Be Lord in our play, in our off times, in our recreation. Be Lord in the work that we do, whether it's SOS or working off campus in some kind of employment Lord, may your lordship extend to all of it, we ask. Be Lord when we open our book to read a textbook for required reading. Be Lord as we write our papers. Come and have your way in it all, we pray, Lord Jesus.